<clears throat> hey everybody, welcome. We're in the green room of Disrupt TV and I'm actually home. What a surprise. <laughs> Here with my amazing co-host, Bala Afshar, our great producer, L, and more importantly, our two guests. So in reverse order, we're gonna introduce you. Tell us a little bit where you're coming from and what you're gonna be talking about today. So Huggy, what's going on? Thank you, Ray. I'm Huggy Rao. I'm a professor at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University. Uh, I'm really looking forward to talking uh, and sharing ideas from our forthcoming book, which is going to come out on January 30th. It's called The Friction Project, How Smart Leaders Make the Right Things Easier and the Wrong Things Harder. <laughs> very, very timely book. So, Graham, where are you coming from? What are we talking about today? Hi, everybody. Yeah, my name is Graham Sheldon. I'm in Seattle today. I'm at home as well, uh, thankfully. And uh, I'll be talking to you about the magic of AI and automation for today's modern enterprises. Very, very cool. Two timely topics, and we're about to kick off. Back to you, L. Let's do the count, and we'll start. All right. Three, two, one. Welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. Ray, this is our 350th episode, just FYI. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on X, Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send us your questions. We'll try to answer them live. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO, founder of Constellation Research. He is the best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World. Just about every day, I see him on television. I see him on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, CNBC, Bloomberg. He's everywhere. He's, in my opinion, one of the top futures to follow on X at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. And with our amazing co-host, Vala Afshar, the chief digital evangelist for Salesforce. He's, more importantly, the author of this book, Boundless, A New Mindset for Unlimited Business Success. And, of course, it's available everywhere where books are sold. But more importantly, executives around the world attention to every one of his inspirational and insightful tweets. But when he's not keynoting, speaking, or leading events at Salesforce, you can find him on business TV outlets like Bloomberg and, of course, putting insightful analyses on ZeniNet. But speaking about insightful analyses, who do we have to kick it off to talk about an amazing new world ahead? We were just talking with Graham about him working with Satya Nadala and like building world-class demos and delighting customers. Our green room conversation was amazing so it's a privilege for us to have graham sheldon he's the chief product officer at uipath uipath is dedicated to accelerating human achievement by ai powered end-to-end -end automation platform we're going to talk a lot about automation and ai in the next segment graham is passionate about driving companies vision of accelerating human achievement through ai powered automation he's got over 20 years of experience he must have started when he was like 11 uh, experience in product design, research, and engineering. <laughs> Graham has deep uh, understanding of the potential for technology to unlock human creativity and productivity. Prior to joining UiPath, Graham spent two decades at Microsoft, where he drove product engineering on Bing, Dynamics, Windows, and Office. Most recently, he was the CVP and uh, a product for Microsoft Teams, one of the fastest growing business applications with over 270 million users worldwide. You can follow Graham on X at G Sheldon, S-H-E-L-D-O-N. Welcome, Graham, to Disrupt TV. 
Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Val and Ray. I don't have a book to 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 show though. I can catch up with you guys. <laughs> Listen, Graham. We had a guy on our show a couple of months ago. His name is Professor Atali. He was on our show talking about his eighty third book. Oh my! I he, he's, yeah. he's advised for, for presidents in France, but I mean, talk about. Yeah, we're all we were all <laughs> we're, we're very humbled. Yeah. And, uh, we're like, oh my god, what's what's going on here? But hey, let's start with a little about UiPath. I know a lot of folks know who they are, but give us the stats, the revenue, the employees, uh, the size and scale of the company, and more importantly, why do you believe bots can do anything? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah, UiPath is all about end-to-end -end business platform. It's a business automation platform that delivers AI and automation software that help companies, you know, accelerate their growth, operate more efficiently, and, and really think about how to transform the way people work. And uh, we have over 10,000 customers worldwide, uh, including sort of two thirds of the global 2000. Uh, wow. There's over 4,000 employees at UiPath. Um, and our evolution has been, you know, we started as a scrappy tech startup in 2015. And now in our latest uh, public disclosures last quarter, um, we have $1.3 billion in ARR. So we've grown really fast and we're constantly evolving, um, trying to become, you know, a, a real true end-to-end -end business automation platform for our customers. Um, and Ray, uh, we think robots are pretty awesome, but really, uh, to be honest, there's really no substitute for human sort of ingenuity and creativity. Uh, you know, Vala said it right. Uh, our mission is to really try to help accelerate human achievement. So, you know, AI is great for certain things, but humans, you know, they're really they're really great at a lot of things. We're not looking to replace uh, humans. We're just trying to help them focus on the stuff that they really love to do. And so, you know, our vision for AI at work includes making sure that employees can become sort of the best versions of themselves at work. An example of that is Time Magazine selected you guys, if I'm not mistaken, for the best invention of 2023 with your AI clipboard. Uh, uh, so, so it was a, an example of removing friction. Of course, our next guest is an expert on, on friction. We're going to talk a lot about that. So to talk about, um, you know, if you want to talk about the award itself, I think it's pretty cool to be recognized by time. But talk about your vision of and the intersection of, you know, automation and AI coming together. Obviously, you spent 20 years at a company that has an incredible history of innovation and automation and, and productivity and creativity. Mm -hmm. um, and now at UiPath, and what does it take for a chief product officer to help these two thirds of Fortune 2000 enter this hyper-connected knowledge sharing economy with hyper-automation and AI fueling our economy. Yeah, that's, there's, there's a lot there, Val, um, for a lot for people to take in. And so I think it's really useful to understand that um, we, we fundamentally believe that AI is one of those real catalysts for, for change you know, like the, the personal computer, uh, the internet, um, we think AI really truly will um, help people become a more productive version of themselves. But AI kind of without automation, I like to think of as sort of having like a, a brain without a body. It's oh, yeah. sort of uh, in order for AI to make informed decisions to help people the right way, it needs the context about the decision that's being made. It needs to know who the customer is you're talking to. Uh, are they entitled to a certain level of service? Have they complained about this issue before? Have they, do they have open orders with you? And so on and so forth. Automation can help bring that context to bear so that the AI can make an informed decision about these things. Automation can also then take the appropriate actions, you know, to be proactive, to go and, you know, take uh, the particular insights that it comes up with and then do something meaningful with it. And so that that customer can have a great end-to-end -end experience. The context isn't lost. Um, so that uh, an employee, when they onboard, um, you have all the critical information for the next stage and for the next person or the next task that they need to accomplish. And so our position is that, you know, to bring AI to life in an organization, you really need to operationalize it through automation so that you can trust it, so that you're making use of the best and greatest uh, technology. And so that you know businesses 
can use the, you know, the latest generative techniques or our own breed of specialized AI to configure those specifically to your business or to your industry or to your process. Um, and that's why partnering with a company like uh, UiPath to build out AI in the context of your operation is so essential. And that's where we've seen a lot of companies, um, you mentioned Clipboard AI, who take these innovations and be able to apply them in practice. Um, and uh, there's a recent study by Bain that we worked with where it said over half of those companies, the number one thing they point to when, in terms of like what it takes to be successful is to help democratize these tools, to help people understand, build the expertise and knowledge about when the right time is to use it. Um, mm. What tasks is it in fact good for? Because we're coming down off the hype cycle and people want to see the real yeah. uh, impact that this stuff can have in their enterprises. So you know, I have a follow-up. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I should have a follow-up question because you're talking about precision, you're talking about outcomes, and you're the chief product officer, which I love because when I was when I was building in another lifetime before joining Salesforce. Um, I felt that it wasn't customer at the center of our business. It was us at the edge of our customer's business. So we could see mm. how our customers were serving their customers. I'm curious, how, how do you spend your time learning about killer use cases? Um, are you spending, a, and I'm, I'm, I think I know the answer, but you're spending time with customers, seeing how they're delivering their services and products, and then reverse engineering what UiPath needs to do to enhance and turbocharge how they delight their end users? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm a very big proponent in sort of the, the product-driven mantra that you, you need to have strong opinions, but hold them loosely. Mm. And that, what that means is a hypothesis-driven sort of, you can't, not, no field of dreams. There's, you can't just build it and they will come. Uh, you have to co-innovate with your customers. And so we, uh, I oftentimes talk to my product team about how our customers are actually more like partners than they are customers. Sure. So sure. it's through, um, you know, because a lot of times the, this, these tools require both the product to come to it, but also the customer to adapt to it in some way. Right. And right. the cool stuff is sort of where you find the, the, the mesh, the, the merger of what's possible and what's needed. And so uh, the example uh, for clipboard AI, um, we would not have been as successful with that product. I mean, yes, it's, it's incredible that we were recognized for that innovation by Time Magazine, um, but we wouldn't have been possible if we didn't have a company like Wesco. Uh, Wesco, you may know, it's one of the largest distribution companies in the world. Oh, yeah. They rolled yeah. out Clipboard AI, and they've been giving us really detailed feedback um, awesome. about things like you know how they deal with their bills of lading or their purchase orders and how Clipboard AI... You know, we tried a couple of things and maybe they, you know, they, they work really well. A couple other things didn't work as well. And they were trying to help us figure out how the tool needed to adapt. And so that co-innovation was critical for making sure that we had, you know, the right insights about what to build next. Yeah. I mean, this is a great point. I mean, building on what Vala said, I mean, these analytics, automation and AI are coming together. Customers, as they put these concepts together, they're getting different types of use cases. You talked about Westco. What are other types of use cases coming out, like other results that people are expecting? And I'll give you some categories. Is, is it like yeah. cost takeout? Is it operational efficiency? Are they becoming more regulatory compliant? Is there new growth? Uh, is there new business models that merge because automation happened mm -hmm. and they could do something differently? Like, where do you see these fitting? Yeah, I mean, honestly, Ray, I've seen all of those uh, yeah. very directly. Um, a few that popped to mind that might be interesting to you and your viewers are like um, Lazard. Um, they're one of the biggest, <clears throat> excuse me, independent, I think it might be the largest independent uh, investment bank. Um, they've used UiPath with generative AI to automate one of the um, one of the more painstaking things that bankers have to do, which is they create these huge, you know, they used to print them out, huge books, uh, public information books that go along with a deal. And they're hundreds of pages long. Um, and that means collecting data from a ton of different sources, right? And instead of doing that, you know, they, they rolled this out to, you know, a thousand bankers where instead of doing that, they use generative AI with automation to create that for them and to let them sort of curate what it was coming up with, generating summaries for it, 
And then, you know, that saves something that would have otherwise taken hours or days to mm. produce now takes minutes. And so they estimated, I think, um, $63 million worth of savings and uh, from that one automation alone. And the, you know, the, the kind of cool thing about it is like, you know, no investment banker goes to school to study data entry and data retrieval. Like that's no, not what they that, that doesn't, Yeah, no one does right? that. <laughs> but now like they're, they're focusing on the, the fun part, which is like, yeah. hey, Heels. this is Heels. what I recommend that we do about this information. Yeah. Here's, you know, the how you should structure this deal the right way instead of the laborious parts of, you know, pulling the data together and assembling it. Um, I've got um, more shares like that too. I mean, but you're absolutely right. It's about, you know, business growth is possible. You know, you can clearly think about, you know, using AI to come up with insights that you might have missed otherwise. So like in, in, in you know, trying to, you probably know this really well, Bala, like looking at processes end to end, you know, you can really understand what a customer's journey looks like or how a case gets resolved or how a deal comes together and where the bottlenecks are, um, where the compliance things, where a step is missed, a critical sure. decision is made on an approval. Those are things that you can only get now with some AI because of the type of data and the volume of data that you have to look at sure. in order to come up with some of the insights that are necessary. Absolutely. And we've been talking about these insights and journey maps for a decade. But to be mm -hmm. honest with you, 10 years ago when we were talking about it, Enterprise software applications, they didn't have hyperscaler integration. They didn't have CDP technology outside of marketing. They couldn't harmonize. They couldn't create smart workflows. There was definitely no machine learning assistant in the background. You know, uh, so so today we can do that. Today it's no longer, you know, it's a, it's a it's a age of abundance, not scarcity. Um, and 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 I, my, my, today I published a ZDNet article, which was a survey of. A thousand enterprise CIOs with more than two thousand employees, and uh, integration was a top uh, 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 challenge for them to adopt AI solutions. Data silos yeah. uh, continue to plague nine hundred ninety some odd enterprise applications on average, with only an average of four years for the lifespan of the app, and only twenty six percent are integrated. So it feels like, and this is my question too, it seems like, okay, you know, maybe it's easier today to build products than ever before, or is it harder to build products ever before? Because you have to think about security, you have to think about scale. Now you have to think about, you know, co-pilots and GPTs and AI solutions. When you're advising companies to build their innovation roadmap, which you surely are because you're a chief yeah. product officer, what do you, how do you guide them through this, this, what I feel like continues to be an ever evolving and complex um, complex surface space. You know, you have to have system thinking, critical thinking. You need to have some sense of what the tech stack should look like. It's it's not easy, in my opinion. It's not oh, easy it's, at it's all. It's absolutely not. Um, yeah, especially you know, in today's modern enterprise. I I don't remember the stat you mentioned, but one that I remember is you know, it's like over 170 active applications and systems being used at an average sort of uh, enterprise. Um, and that legacy problem that many enterprises have uh, is a reality, right? That's just, sure. you have to deal with that. Sure. And so if you're thinking about, I like to, to start the conversation sort of at a, a little higher level of abstraction, which is um, we've been on, you know, for the last 15, 20 years, people have been thinking more strategically about how to collect data and how to manage master data. So you have a system of record, like right? that's one sure. clear leg of the stool, right? In your enterprise architecture. Um, you also, you know, over the last, you know, five to 10 years, um, uh, Teams was a part of this, Slack is a part of this, Zoom is a part of this. Sure. You start to think about the systems of engagement. So sure. where your people can be most productive. Um, I know Salesforce went through this evolution. Many sure. companies try to bring those tools closer to where the work is getting done, yeah. right? Productivity and, and communications. That's a second big sort of leg of the stool. And then the third leg of the stool in the enterprise architecture, you have to start thinking about these processes. So how does work get done across my people? How does it get done across these systems, including the legacy ones you can't just ignore? Sure. And with that, you need a third leg of the stool, which is a system of automation that helps you basically tie these things together and reason not just about an individual task that happens in one place or another, but also sort of tying them at the, the, the higher level. And that really resonates with a lot of 
um, you know, people who, today, who, CIOs who have to manage this, you know, fractal problem, um, yeah. and where people are bringing all sorts of consumer apps and different tools. Yeah. To cable Bring your own app. LLM. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it is. This is 2007. I think this launched the bring your own device. You know, certainly the iPhone, I think, was a catalyst for BYOD. And now it's bring your own models, bring your own, you know. And, and, and of course, we're also seeing the convergence of RPAs and VPMs and process mining, integration tools, API management. MuleSoft was our third largest acquisition at Salesforce. Knowing that those legacy, highly customized on-premise solutions needed to co connect to those 40 cloud apps you have uh, and, and still maintain business continuity. And, and yeah, so anyway, it's, uh, you must yeah, have an amazing amount of fun. We had, um, <laughs> uh, Aon is one of our biggest customers and they just you know, released a, a really nice statement that said, you know, look, UiPath is really helping us to automate these end-to-end -end processes without having to go across the bespoke solutions. Like mm. having that, you know, uh, strategic investment on their part allows them to make use of things like workflow management, to your point, API automation, the UI automation that we were known for, you know, five years ago as an RPA company, in addition to AI, both, you know, generative and specialized stuff that, that make them really productive. You know, that's right. I mean, we're, we're seeing all these different tools come together and, and there's also convergence going on between RPA and BPM, RPA and workflow, RPM process mining, RPM integration tools, RPM API management. Uh, is that making it easier for you know folks to build products? Is it easier than before to build this uh, and in terms of an age of AI or you know, is it just getting more complicated? It's definitely getting easier to build with, uh, I mean, there's two pieces to what you touched on there, right? One, one is the emergence of uh, AI. The other is sort of the convergence of a lot mm -hmm. of these disparate technologies. Um, you know, in terms of the, the convergence, we're, we absolutely believe that that's a, a healthy thing. You know, um, we mentioned, you know, BPM, we mentioned workflow, you mentioned process mining and task mining and, and integration tools, you know. Uh, UiPath has been on this sort of journey to become yeah. more of a, you know, business automation platform, not just an RPA uh, technology provider. And that's sort of a natural evolution from our customers telling us, look, you know, in order for us to get the next, you know, mile of productivity out of these tools, we need to be able to understand what's going on, which is why, you know, process mining and task mining are so important. Uh, or we need to be able to look not just at the um, rigid or, or the very routine tasks, but the ones that are more flexible. So that's where workflow automation really helps you to map out what's going on both in reality and in an ideal state and be able to reason about it. So it's definitely, but that's the, it's, it's awesome that these things are coming together because you don't have to do as much of the systems integration as a customer or as a user in these states. Now, AI is a different one for, for if I can, if I might, yeah. AI um, is kind of interesting because it's, uh, generative in particular has made it really easy to do a lot of uh, things that were, were previously hard to do, you know, parsing text, classifying things, extracting information, um, building bots and stuff like that. Uh, but it's also kind of a, a hammer in search of nails right now. Uh, I see a lot of people applying chat experiences. I mean, I love, you know, the yeah. co-pilot and our autopilot experiences, but it's, you know, uh, I remember very, and I'm sure you do as well, when when uh, Alexa and you know voice was going to change the world. And what do I use it now for now? I'm sure it's very similar. Like I, I play music, set timers, <laughs> might, you know, check the weather or something. But it didn't fundamentally change some of the things that you know. Why do we still have keyboards sure. when the mouse? You, you, you had a clap on, clap off moment. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. It's true. And, and, and perhaps with screens and newer versions, you could perhaps have more contextual intelligence to come up with better use cases. Graham, I got to tell you, and I hate to give unsolicited advice to chief product officers, but you have three books in you. You just need to sit down and bang them out. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> Thanks. And my customers and partners keep me very busy. And I, yeah. I, I, yes. I yeah. Building. But, but you, you just dumped two chapters in the last 30 minutes on us. So you've got three books in you. Anyway, thank you so much for your shared wisdom. Really appreciate it. It's so, a pleasure. Hey, last question to you. What would you tell a university student in CS today what path they should pursue next? Ooh. 
that's a great one, Ray. I, um, you know, uh, just to riff on that last thing we were just talking about, um, whereas AI is helping us, it, it makes it easier for people to build products. It doesn't help you to build great products. Ah. And there are sort of two keys that, or, or two, and two, with two mistakes that I see people often do. They either go too deep or they go too broad. Hmm. Both of which are really important, especially for students in education. Um, I think I've benefited personally from you know the exposure to lots of, of different things, or you know, and the liberal arts are really helpful for you to see patterns in one domain apply to patterns in another domain, um, and applying principles from you know one walk of life to another. So getting a, a breadth is important but also going deep is important so that you really understand first principles. Go study math, physics, statistics. It's not enough to be able to go use and, you know, anybody can go retrain a llama model right now. It's great, yeah. super useful. But if you don't know why this stuff is working, then you don't know why it won't be useful for other things as well. So maybe that's a-, a No, it's great. We, we push digital artisans, bringing yeah. the left brain and the right brain together. Speaking about llama models, I was at Davos and invited to a special meeting. It was a penthouse meeting. It was supposed to be, you know, llama two. I get up there, there's candles, there's incense, and it's the reincarnation of a llama. Literally, oh, wow. I was in the middle of a meditation session. <laughs> oh, that was certainly a multimodal learning experience. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right. Totally not the llama I was expecting, but you know, very, very interesting. Uh, Parker, by the way, Parker Harris, the co-founder of Salesforce, is liberal arts, and he's our greatest builder at Salesforce. He was a first engineer, but a liberal arts major. So the, the design thinking principles and building products that can sufficiently go wide and deep. I mean, that Parker is master at that. So yeah, yeah great, ba great balance of advice. Yeah. yeah. It's We're hard to build stuff that people love. Yeah, that's true. That's it. That, that's that is it. it. That's, that's the it. quote. Graham Sheldon, chief product four officer books. of UiPath. Four books in here. Oh, right. Four books. Twitter <laughs> at GS. Thank you for the encouragement. You can follow him there. So thank you <laughs> thank so you, much Brad. for being on the show. Thanks. Take care. Happy Friday. Thanks. Take care. Well-rounded chief product officer. I That's, know. Um, Long line of no, great no, talent from Seattle. So Absolutely. Absolutely. But what all of our guests, almost 1,200 guests are missing, is the greatest first name in the history of Disrupt TV. <laughs> our next guest. <laughs> and I say that with total sincerity. Hagi Ra, co-author of a book that's coming out next week. So you're getting breaking news on the show in the next half hour. Yes. The Friction Project. How smart leaders make the right things easier, and the wrong things harder. Huggy is the Athol McBean Professor of Organizational Behavior at Stanford Graduate School of Business and a fellow of the Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Science, the Sociological Research Association, and the Academy of Management. Huggy has written for Harvard Business Review, Business Week, Wall Street Journal, all major uh, influential publications. His latest book, The Friction Project, right now is the number one new release on Amazon. Amazing. And it's a definitive guide to eliminating the forces uh, that, uh, that make it harder, more complicated, or downright impossible to get things done in organizations. Uh, his book is so, uh, there's so much reverence for Huggy's book. Uh, Adam Grant said this about the Fiction Project. If every leader took the ideas in this book seriously, the world would be a less miserable and more productive place. <laughs> I mean, what an endorsement. Uh, welcome, Huggy, to Disrupt TV. <laughs> oh, we have you on mute. Sorry, oh, we hey, have Huggy. you on mute. We'll get you off mute. But uh, yeah, you know, we're really excited to have you here. And uh, yeah. There we go. Thank you both. Uh, a delight to be here with both of you this morning. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Well, hey, we're looking at the book and, and you have some interesting things around things like friction forensics and how to figure out good and bad friction in organization. Uh, and, and I think that's really important. So, so what, what's required? How do you change your mindset uh, to make things easier, right? So the right things easier and the wrong things harder, actually creating those behavior design principles that can reinforce, you know, mechanisms. If BJ Fogg was here, I think he'd be smiling, right? You get the idea. Of it, so. <laughs> 
<laughs> Great question, Ray. Perhaps, please allow me to sort of situate, uh, you know, my response. Bob and I wrote a book called Scaling Up Excellence, and the book did well. I mean, it was a Wall Street Journal bestseller, so we were happy with that. We noticed that the top echelons and the senior echelons of an enterprise, they loved the message. But as we went lower down, people liked the message, but it came with a lament. And the lament was, it's so hard to get anything done. <laughs> so two quick bookends for our viewers. I asked one executive in an executive education class at Stanford, hey, where do you work? And the guy looks at me and replies with a glint in his eye, I work in a frustration factory. <laughs> I mean, I was like floored. And then there was another woman, I can never forget her, a young woman. And I can even recall the quiver in her voice. And she said something that hit me in the solar plexus. She said, I pour myself into doing inconsequential work. And when I come home, all I've got left are the scraps of myself. Wow. That just kind of hit me in the gut. Wow. And Bob and I said, you know what? We really need to understand friction land. So we went in with the lens of what is it? We Friction in the end, as we all know, is about obstacles. Some obstacles infuriate people. That's bad friction, like bad fracture. Uh, bad bacteria. And then you have good friction, obstacles that slow down and educate people. You can think of those as kind of good bacteria, the equivalent of good bacteria. And once we kind of realized both sides of friction, what came through loud and clear was the biggest challenge facing companies is time poverty, as those two quotes illustrate. People just don't have to. And when you don't have time, it's super hard for employees to recruit or choose a more curious and generous version of themselves. They just exhaust. And so as a leader, you really need to think of yourself as a trustee of other people's time. That is really the first step to changing the mindset, if you will. The moment you see yourself as a trustee of other people's time, that's when you think about where is it I remove bad friction so people can be curious and generous. But at the same time, all human beings, employees being no exception, customers being no exception, they can easily choose an overconfident and myopic version of themselves. And so how do we stop that? So you really need to put good friction in. So constantly as a leader, what you're kind of thinking about is, where do I take obstacles out? What kinds of obstacles do I put in? And all with a view to kind of make sure we are managing time very responsibly instead of wasting, frittering, and frankly, pissing away people's time. So that is the first sort of step to my mind in changing the mindset of leaders. And what I find is, even now, as a result of writing the book, I keep my asking myself, if I go to that meeting, is that going to recruit my curious and generous self? If not, I'm not going to go there. Good point. It's just a waste of time. Good wow. Point. So that's a, that's a great example of subtraction. Uh, giving you peace of mind by not, going, right. to the, not going to the meeting. It, it, I do feel, I do, by the way, you make words dance. Uh, you, you've got a great, like time poverty. That, that's a, that's the first time I've heard, you know, those two words next to each other. And it's, it feels like a delicious paradox because I would think the path to achievement and wealth is a journey of time poverty because you have to make deliberate sacrifices. You have to welcome intentional struggle. You tend to ignore loved ones and people around you. So you you can be rich in one way and poor in the other. Uh, so I, I love the terminology, time poverty. Man, I can think of many, many years in my life where I definitely experienced time poverty. Um, I may, that may still be true, but I wanted to get to a question. In your book, you talk about the, you talk about the five most common and damaging um, you know, friction troubles. 
and uh, you know, clueless leaders. You talk about you talk about addition sickness. You talk about broken connections, jargon monoxide. I love that jargon monoxide, and the fast and frenzied people and teams. But you had just talked about an example of selecting not to go to a meeting, so it was a, a subtraction example. But That's you right. say you know, humans default. You write in your book to what can I add here instead of what can I get rid of. Absolutely. About how do you create that mi mindset where it's not compound through addition, but really That's exactly right. That's a great question, Bala. Because what the research shows unequivocally is human beings have an addition bias. It doesn't matter whether you're building Lego sets or planning a trip, <laughs> or for that matter, reimagining an organization. In all of these things, when you ask people for ideas, invariably their ideas featuring addition. Yeah. Addition is a good thing to an extent, but the problem is when we add, we actually don't think of the tragedy of the commons, and that is the available time to employees, mm. the available time and attention sure. that employees have. Sure. So what the research shows is the more we add, it turns out people lose willpower. So here's a super simple experiment. You take, let's say, 100 people, randomly put them into two groups. Everybody in group A is given a unique two-digit number. So Ray's two-digit number might be different from you, Val. In the other group, everybody is given a unique seven-digit number. So my seven-digit number might be very different from your colleague L's seven-digit number. That's the simple experiment. Sevens don't know there's a group called the twos. Twos don't know the group. There's a group called the sevens. Why seven? Seven is the magic number. Because on average, it's the amount of stuff we can put in our working memory. Some people can put way more, one, two, three standard deviations. So that's why the seven and two contrast. So in this experiment, once people are given two digits or seven digits, the door open, they step into a lobby. There's a table, fruit at one end, and a very sinful chocolate cake at the other. And the purpose of the experiment is to figure out who's going to vacuum the chocolate. <laughs> and, you know, as we would think, people who have seven digits to remember, they're prone to vacuum the chocolate cake. Because what for most of us, chocolate cake is a temptation. And we need willpower. Most of us think willpower is in the heart and brain power is here. But mm. they're very connected. The people with two digits, they got plenty of willpower in the gas tank. They look at the chocolate cake and say, God, I want to eat that. You know what, maybe I need to work out, etc. Whereas the people in the seven-digit condition, they say, what's the number again? 842, and by then you like vacuum two slices. And that's the problem. So the new marshmallow test. No willpower. <laughs> and if you don't have the willpower, it's hard for you to ask questions. It's hard for you to be helpful. How can you do all of it? Yeah. You, you just don't have any of these things. And so... Part of what we need to do is we need to kind of think of subtraction. But the, sub the purpose of subtraction is not to strip tasks away only or obstacles that infuriate people only. But what's more important is you've got to make sure you take out the negative feelings associated with all this business of being overwhelmed. Yeah. I mean, and that is really what you're kind of aiming for in... What we sort of recommend to executives and the others is, hey, what's the simplest way to get to the addition bias? In fact, I was teaching it this morning. Get rid of stupid stuff. <laughs> I mean, it's not complicated. Uh, Melinda Ashton, she's a physician at uh, Hawaii, the Hawaii Medical Center. Oh, yeah. She said, hey, we do a lot of stupid stuff and we don't get rid of it. So she started this initiative. Within a couple of days, she received 188 suggestions of what could be done. And they were able to save a lot of time. One example, if you reduce one mouse click, as people, you know, doctors and nurses are walking around patients, uh, you know, they have four units and patients, etc. Sure. They found out that the cumulative effect was you'd save 1,700 hours per month. Where's wow. Marie Kondo when we need her? <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing, Ray. We wrote a case study, uh, Bob and I, Bob Sutton, my wonderful comrade uh, co-author, 
uh, about AstraZeneca. And as you can imagine, Astra is super regulated. It's a pharmaceutical company. Oh, yeah. But the incredible thing is a group of people, they launched a movement. And what they did was they saved the company two million hours. Now, now, it starts by looking at friction traps, right? And and that's a Absolutely. very important piece of this. And I think you have identified a few ones, one at the people level, one talking about, you know, getting rid of addition, doing a Marie Kondo and people. Uh, and the other one was really about communications, uh, really bad communications, and, and figuring out when to apply good friction. Talk about those and how you work with these together, because they're, they're very different skill sets. Not all leaders can tackle these at the same time. It's, it's pretty hard to find a leader that can hit all five of these. Great question, Rick. Let's begin with communication. Most companies kind of like insist or proclaim they have a vision. And when you really look at the vision statement of the company, you look at the language of it. Superior customer service. I'm like, hey, buddy, the whole point of a vision is all other employees ought to be able to visualize. Can you visualize what superior customer service is? I'd have a hard time. I mean, it could mean n number of things to me. Sure. Isn't it easier to tell our employees, hey, what you really need to do is to put a smile on a customer's face. Psh. I can visualize it. I've traveled there. I know what to do. Wow. And That's we crazy. don't communicate. And so, uh, you know, um, let me give you an example of communication. I think the thing about what people don't understand about communication is, and storytelling is, there's a lot of evidence that suggests that when people are exposed to the same story, you coordinate better. You actually bring people together because they have a shared picture. Yep. One vivid example, I teach in the Stanford executive program. This is for people who become CEOs and the like. So some years ago, there was a Swedish rear admiral. He was going to be the CEO of a Swedish loss-making submarine company called Koken. And, you know, they were making a lot of losses. And he, after he finished the course I was teaching, you know, that dealt with all of these things, he said, I'm going to be introduced as the new CEO. What should I do? We strategize. I got to give him a lot of credit. The guy was amazing. He came up with a lot of ideas. And here's what he did, Bala and Ray. The group CEO asked him, where do you want to be introduced to your employees? And he said, I want to be introduced in corporate headquarters in uh, Stockholm. I want to be introduced in the submarine yard. Nice. Which is near Malmo. <clears throat> So there's a podium, group chairman, outgoing CEO, incoming CEO, or Swedish rear admiral. That seat is vacant. And the workers in the submarine, they're all, a yard are looking around saying, hey, where's the new guy? I guess he's vanished already because we've been making losses for a while. They laugh and they joke and so on. And finally, the name of this incoming CEO is called. And they're astonished when they realize the guy's sitting with them. And he also has a hard hat. Just that nonverbal gesture alone was wow. enough to say, awesome. I'm one of you. And then the guy stands up and he used one slide. One. Love it. Okay. So he puts a slide up, uh, sub the conning tower, and the dashing Swedish naval captain leaning against the conning tower. And he looks at the audience and he says, you guys recognize the sub? And they say, yeah, of course, we made it like 20 years ago. It was a great sub and on and on and on and on. And then he says, Do you, and any of you recognize this dashing Swedish naval captain? No clue who this bloke is. You know? And after a while, he says, that was me. When I worked in the Swedish Navy, it was my pleasure to command a submarine made by you. I knew my men were safe. We could undertake any mission without a problem. Wow. Wow. And he just turned and looked at all of these submarine workers and said, can you help me build another boat like that? And wow. he sat down. What do you think was the effect Unbelievable. on the submarine workers? What do you guys think was the no no example of communication and storytelling? No broken connection. He instantly connected with all men and women. That's amazing. That's and amazing. he did that like in 10 minutes flat. Amazing. Right. I mean, they say Not brevity, brevity is the soul of wisdom. That's a wise Completely. captain. Completely. <laughs> That's a wise you know? captain. Yeah. But look That's at what he was able to do. He he activated their pride. Right. 
And most of all, what he did was the moment he stood up from where they were sitting down, wearing a hard hat, he immediately opened their ears. They're willing to listen to what he has to say. He was not oblivious. That's awesome. That's right. That's exactly right. Huggy, I need some career advice from you. So (laughs) this is a very important next question. I've been chief digital evangelist. Pretty cool title for eight years plus. Amazing title. Given to me by the president of products at Salesforce. But I think it's time for me to change my title to chief friction fixer. Uh, you know, I think that's a pretty awesome <laughs> So, Huggy, how do I need to change my mind, mindset? How do I look at, you know, complex scenarios that I typically find myself trying to guide folks out, out of uh, if I'm going to be a successful chief friction fixer? What do I need to do? Great question. Great, great question. The first place I'd quickly begin is looking at examples of friction, which actually convey to the employees that nobody cares. <laughs> That's what a broken window is. Oh, yeah. So you now most people think broken windows were like invented by some cop in New York. It was actually our Stanford colleague, Philip Zimbard. He, it's yep. called a broken window study because... He took a VW in the 60s, broke open the rear and uh, front windows and parked it on a street in Brooklyn and began filming what would happen. And there's glass and debris on the road. And the first person to encounter the vehicle is a dad with a kid. You know, do you walk to the other side, call the cops? What does the dad do? Steals the radio. In one hour, the car is stripped clean. And what broken windows tell people is nobody cares. And so... That is where I would recommend that you start. And in organizations, the broken window could be something as simple as, hey, you spend 75 bucks uh, taking a client out to dinner, but you got to fill like a five-page reimbursement form. <laughs> and, you know, now, what, what are you conveying to people? Like, we don't trust you. Now, you can use all this rhetoric of we trust you, you're empowered and all that, but then you got to go through this and people say, man, they don't kind of trust you. So... Let me give you an example of another company that I went to, and you instantly realize the areas of friction. So I asked uh, the employees, hey, uh, I asked the CEO, what does your company promise? He said, speed, convenience, and trust. I said, okay, let me talk to your employees. So I asked him one question. I said, how hard is it for you to solve a customer's problem? Yeah, it's really hard. I said, really? Why is that so hard? He says, you got to do anything? you require nine approvals. And you say, why do you need nine approvals? They look at you and say, they don't trust us. So you're promising speed and convenience and the employee experience is actually the kind of inverse. Now, this is an area where you can quickly identify friction. So more concretely, Vala, one of the mischievous ideas I'd like to offer to you is when Salesforce hires new recruits from universities and colleges, they're your best friction fighting allies. Send them into the organization and say, hey, what do you find crazy, confusing, stupid? Let's see what they come up with. I love that. And they'll come up with things that shock you. In one company, I'm like walking by, I see a chip designer, and as you guys know better than I do, they require two big monitors. I asked the guy, I said, hey, how long did it take for you to get the second monitor? The guy looks at me and says, you work here? I said, no, I'm a professor at Stanford Business School. He says, professor? Took me two weeks to get an extra monitor. I said, really, why is it like that? He says, the place is like a Turkish bazaar in Istanbul. He said, you got to knock on so many doors. Now, I love that. I love that. See, this, is, this is why I think it's important to be a chief friction fixer, because ultimately, if you do your job well, you become, you create a legacy of chief value officer. Because if you can deliver value at the speed of need, you've removed all that unnecessary friction. So I really am hopeful that if I can have that chief friction officer mindset, people will view me as the guy that adds the most value to our state. Absolutely. Employees, customers, partners. You know, you, you suggested a very fascinating connection, Vala. 
And I just finished a case study on a, com on a uh, scale up that is being done by a Stanford alum. It's a fun company, amazing company. And the entrepreneur is in his mid forties. I wanted our students to realize, hey, startups doesn't mean you gotta be 20 years old. I mean, a lot of people do startups. Ray and I are happy to hear that because we're way past 20. Yeah. <laughs> you know, seriously, I mean, he's, so the startup is called Mind 24 seven. And oh, yeah. it's, it's revolutionizing mental health. Yeah. This is in Arizona, Nevada, and California. They're slowly awesome. starting. And it's to me, it's inconceivable that you have 24-7 mental health facilities open, physical facilities. Yeah. So you go there, and I ask him, I said, hey, how long does it take for me to see a psychiatrist? He said, 22 minutes. Just think of your local hospital in Seattle or the Bay Area. Wow. You want to see... A psychiatrist, I doubt whether you can do that in 24 no, yeah. minutes. Yeah. So I asked him to your point about friction and value. And I said, Hey, what's your, how do you operate? And he looks at me and says, Well, we welcome everybody. I said, like, What does that mean? I said, I said, You mean you welcome everybody from an adolescent with ADHD to a homeless person? He said, Exactly. I said, Okay, yeah. do you have any other guiding like motto? And he looks at me and he says, the other one is, we never ask a mental health patient, how are you going to pay for this? Wow. I mean, just he says, just you never, ever ask somebody how you pay for that. Wow. And I said, but That's how do you survive that? He looks and, you know, he kind of used the words exactly you're using, Mala. He said, because we create value. I said, I see you creating value for the patient. Who else are you creating value for and who is paying for it? He said, well, the first group of people I'm creating value for are local hospitals. Yep. Because otherwise, they'd be deluged with mental health patients in their ER. Amazing. Amazing. You know, they, they wouldn't know what to do. Amazing. We know what to do. They're so happy we are here. So the local county and the state and everything, they pour resources. I said, who else? And he looked at me and he says, I create value for cops. I said, cops? Yeah. How do you create value for them? And I was blown away when he told me, this is according to him, sure. evidently the median cop in some cities in Arizona might spend as much as one day a week trying driving mentally ill patients from hospital to hospital, figuring out, are you going to take this person? You don't need to do that anymore. You can come to mine 24-7. And he says, this is working wonderfully well. And so I said, what's the secret of friction fixing? And it was, your question kind of made me think of it. And he kind of looks at me and he says, Haki, you got to understand one thing. At the back end, running a mental health clinic is kind of running a car. You got bronze, platinum, silver, you get the idea. It's like, he says, the real art of friction fixing is love has to meet logistics. Wow. If you're all about love, wow. and there's like no logistics. I mean, you're talking a good game, you're not doing anything. Is if that Jeff or Adrian? Logistics and no love, you got a problem. Was that Jeff or Adrian? Was that Jeff or Adrian? No, there have been others too. Two other people I'm going to be having in my class are Todd Park, who worked for the yep, Obama yep. administration. Yeah, yeah. Devoted course, healthy and their brother. CTO. Yeah, uh, yeah. Todd and BJ Patil, yeah. who some of you guys might know too. DJ was also, yeah, uh, yeah, I think, yeah. the chief technology officer. They talk a lot about love and logistics. And it's I love the, Todd's question is a brilliant question. What would you do differently if the patient was your mom? Yeah, 100%. Exactly. 100%. I love Listen, your algorithm, the huggy algorithm that I'm trying to synthesize, because <laughs> you dropped a lot of wisdom nuggets on us in the last 20 some odd minutes. Um, be welcoming, put a smile on their face, and make sure love and logistics are thought as one. That's awesome, awesome, awesome sauce. Uh, Thank you. I, 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 I'm not surprised because the person with the greatest first name I've ever heard uh, is, is expanding our minds in a peaceful, empathetic, and, 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 and in, enriching way. So thank you so much, sir. That was amazing. Amazing. Ray, your, My pleasure. your final thoughts. 
<laughs> yeah, no, I was I was gonna say this is it's an amazing book. People should definitely take a look at it. Um, sure, bestseller, hundred percent. It's already a bestseller, 100%. and it's not even yeah. out. I mean, look at it on Amazon. <laughs> like, it's got bestseller yeah. status. Number one, number one. Thank so, you. <laughs> but I think I think I think so one thing I do powerful. want our viewers to also kind of realize is part of the job of leaders also is to make a couple of things harder. So let me give you an example. Sure. We, this was some bank, uh, you know, they're trying to sell products uh, and get customers to cross sell. You guys know the drill way better than I do. Sure. <laughs> and it was interesting. I told them, I said, you know, hey, before doing this, why do you, let's go to the lowest performing branch. And they said, why? I said, you're asking people to have eight relationships per customer. If we go to the lowest performing branch, we'll ask them, do you think this is viable? Uh, my ex-ante hypothesis would be they would find it hard. So much to our astonishment, we go to this low performing branch and I ask the low performing employees, hey, do you guys think you can hit the target? And they look at me and say, easily. I said, how? They looked at me and said, it's very easy to establish eight relationships with uninformed elderly customers. I said, oh my God. <laughs> Oh, my God. And now, what's the company done? They've inserted good friction, but not for everybody. You're selling to an elderly customer, buddy, you got to go through a toll gate, and that's the branch manager of the bank. Yeah. You know, well make sure you do that. So you can add friction in all kinds of ways. Friction, it's not like heaviness, uh, you know. Uh, so and the larger the company, the more lightweight the friction. That's very, very true. And and it's it's also the span of control also creates that issue as well. That's hey, exactly a, right. A, a river without boundaries is a puddle. So sometimes you need a little bit of... <laughs> I love that. <laughs> when you say puddle, there's a host of other semantic associations. <laughs> at least not, it's not a pile. We are here yeah. with you off the friction project, how smart leaders make the right things easier and the wrong things harder, a timely book given that we're actually trying to humanize where AI is headed and also think about the impact of scale, uh, machine scale versus humanity. We're actually going to see more of this. Follow him on Twitter or X at Huggy Rao. And more importantly, thank you so much for being here thank today. Thank you so much. We could have talked to you for hours. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very well. much. We'll, we'll, do it, we'll do it on the Stanford thank campus. We'll do it on the Stanford you, campus. So, thank you. Thank we'll you. We'll see you in the green room. Thank you, Ray, and thank you, Vala. Cheers. Bye-bye, everybody. <laughs> All right. Oh my God. We'll see him in the green room. And uh, yeah, what a what an amazing, amazing session today. So uh, tremendously talented uh, chief product officer who's bringing humanity into the and design thinking principles to products and solutions. And I just want to say huggy, 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 huggy. <laughs> I just, I, 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 I want to have at our conference in February. I need to see if he can make it, actually. Uh, <laughs> he, 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 I, I definitely would be sitting there taking copious notes uh, of, of, uh, of his lecture and certainly his book. This was episode 350. Ray, summarize our learnings in 30 seconds, if you could. We are entering a world of AI and automation. Trust is the core at making that successful. Companies are trying to figure out how to bring these concepts together. And actually, there are different ways to actually improve our lives. It's augmentation that we're going to see for quite some time. And of course, we're also going to see some advancements in terms of the skills people need. Uh, but while we're building it and thinking about that design, uh, organizations still have to function. And they function with lots of people. And in order to make that successful, smart leaders are actually figuring out what it takes, right? What do I have to do to make someone's life better? And sometimes it's taking that point of view, walking in someone's shoes. Uh, but other times it's really about a whole bunch of other areas around friction. I think what Huggy and Bob basically put together was a book that helped you identify how to attack this. And I think, uh, Val, you may have a new title of being the chief friction officer uh, that is going to come to bear. Uh, and it's mostly about friction fixers and inserting friction where it makes sense. Sometimes you do want barriers in place to slow things down, give people more time to think, uh, to provide a safety uh, net for folks. Uh, and, and we can see both sides of that. But that book comes out on the 30th. Make sure you get it on Amazon. And, and more awesome. importantly, this Next is Tuesday. episode 350. Definitely on my top of my uh, my list. Uh, okay, next week, episode 351. One of the smartest, one of our favorite guests we have Woo! on the show, Crawford Del Pratt, president of IDC, uh, will join us. And Crawford is kind enough to join us uh, annually to share his uh, vision of uh, technology and its impact on business and society. So Crawford is a must, must watch. 
Carmen Matera, Chief Marketing Officer of O'Reilly Media, an incredible publication. All of us in the tech world familiar with O'Reilly Media. And Eric Pottrell and Alan Eagle, who are the co-authors of Learned Excellence, Mental Disciplines for Leading and Winning from the World's Top Performers. So again, last year we had 75 authors that came on our show, mostly best-selling authors. We're certainly kicking off uh, 2024, where we might have 100 uh, authors, best-selling authors on our show. So if it's uh, Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Thank you for watching, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Everyone. Happy Friday. See you guys in the green room.